For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems things like hard starts rough performance and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup sea foam can help your engine run better and last longer simply pour a can in your gas tank hunters and anglers rely on sea foam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. That's SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. From Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to SteelDealers.com. Now... Here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. It looks like we have a new weapon in the struggle against America's favorite invasive species, Seuss Graffa, a.k.a. the feral pig. That weapon is sodium nitrite, a common substance that is mostly safe for humans and other animals to eat. In fact, it's a key ingredient in curing salt which some of you sausage makers out there use to give your uh, finished product an appealing pink color. If you've ever tried to cure a ham or make a corned moose tongue, you also know sodium nitrite. When sodium nitrite enters the body, it is converted into a compound called methemoglobin. You've probably heard of regular hemoglobin, the protein in your blood that carries oxygen to your cells. Methemoglobin can't bind to oxygen. If you have too much of it in your blood, less and less oxygen gets into your tissue. Eventually, you start suffering from oxygen starvation, known as hypoxia. Luckily, most animals, including humans, also produce an enzyme called methemoglobin reductase, which, as you could probably tell from the name, reduces the amount of methemoglobin in your blood, converting it into good old standard hemoglobin. Unless you are shoveling sodium nitrite into your mouth, this enzyme should keep you protected from the stuff. However, pigs might be the only animal that can't produce methemoglobin reductase. When they ingest any significant amount of sodium nitrite, their blood stops carrying oxygen effectively and they die from hypoxia. This was discovered by accident when domestic pigs ingested plants and water contaminated with chemical fertilizer that broke down into sodium nitrite, which now you can add this crazy scenario to the list of major scientific breakthroughs discovered by accident. 
maybe most famously the case of biologist Alexander Fleming, who in 1928 accidentally left the cover off a Petri dish filled with staph bacteria. He noticed that mold spores that had blown in through an open window killed the bacteria, leading to the development of penicillin, like a poison reverse type situation. You know, so there's that, and then there's killing pigs with sodium nitrite. We don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. So today, let's have a happy accident and see what we can make out of it. Anyway, an Australian company has now developed a sodium nitrite-based poison for feral pigs called Hogon. Huh? Get it? Like, doggone, but for hogs. And gone, like, you know, you want the hogs gone. I can explain this pun more in depth if you'd like. Uh, just, you know, write in. It's A-S-K-C-A-L at TheMeteor.com. Let me know. I can schedule a longer episode on that. Or, uh, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, hog it, where was I? Mm-hmm. Sodium nitrite is cheap and easy to come by, but as it turns out, pigs hate the taste of salt. So the company developed a special micro-encapsulation coating and managed to make the stuff taste like peanut butter. In trials, pigs ate limited amounts of hog gone, wandered off to sleep, and then headed to the great wallow in the sky with much less suffering than other poisons. How they determine the suffering, I can only assume is visual. Trials at certain sites in Australia have shown that 100% kill rates are not uncommon. Just as importantly, it seems that hog gone is harmless to other animals because those animals have plenty of the methemoglobin reductase enzyme that the pigs lack. We've talked before on the show about secondary toxicity affecting all kinds of animals when poisons persist in the landscape, especially for scavengers. If you poison a carcass with the intent to kill a scavenger, you also kill whatever else wanders by. Poison is indiscriminate, which has been a problem for earlier kinds of pig poison, as well as just like the history of poison. Another fun fact for hog gone is it's apparently completely safe for people to eat pigs killed by hog gone. Imagine you cured meat lovers could harvest and pre-brine your swine. Which, if anyone is listening at Hog Gone, that is my slogan, and you had better come to me before using it. Touch me now, soup. Sue me for what? The current peanut butter flavor could work well with a Thai-style smoked pork. I'd watch out for future Hog Gone offerings, and like a Kansas City sweet mix, possibly a Carolina mustard. In all seriousness, this salty peanut butter seems headed for regulatory approval. In the next few years, this could become a major factor in the fight against invasive pigs. The question will remain, are people going to use it? Whole industries and recreation-labeled weekends that involve fuel, ammunition, and restaurant purchases are based around feral hogs, after all. Now, I don't want this segment to come across as an ad for this stuff. Although trials have shown no impact on other animals, I of course worry about impacts on other animals. Eventually, we may find out that maybe not quail or grouse don't have methemoglobin reductase, but maybe like the bugs that they eat and depend on at the early stages of their life are affected by the droppings of this peanut butter salt compound. And then, you know, we're going to find out way too late. History's full of this stuff. It's possible. The other thing that we're going to have to confront 
is, if this stuff is as good as advertised and feral pig numbers drop dramatically, are we hunters going to really like having less pigs around? While also bragging about how important us hunters are in the, quote, war on feral pigs? The U.S. has nearly 9 million feral pigs who do an estimated $2 billion worth of damage. That's a very conservative estimate, by the way, every year. And those pigs create havoc for all other kinds of species. However, as bad as that is, it pales in comparison with Australia's problems. They are dealing with an estimated 24 million feral pigs. This week, we've got alligator ant acid, Neolithic gnaw marks, the crime desk, and so much more. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week, as well as this podcast, as you know, is sponsored by Steel Power Equipment. Old Snort and I finally got back to doing some training. I'm not going to lie, the dog is very spoiled, but she works really hard. Until, of course, she got bit by that damn rattlesnake. So the combination of being very spoiled, minus the hard work, was making me very nervous. Youth waterfowl season is coming up fast, and Snort will be ready. The ear may be permanently bald, so I'm actively coming up with some workarounds for late season temperatures, wind chill and such. Uh, We'll get there, I promise. That reminds me, season 10 of Meat Eater, coming out hot on Netflix. Available by the time you hear this. Get fired up for fall and temper yourself for late season by checking out season 10 of Meat Eater only on Netflix. What else is going on? I'm gearing up for a moose hunt. Not mine, but a friend of mine, the old pot-bellied stallion. We're hoping for the cool weather to come in and the moose rut to come on strong. That's my cow moose call. Moving on to the prehistoric reptile desk. Earlier this month, the owner of a game processing facility in Mississippi discovered two Native American artifacts buried in the contents of an alligator's stomach. Yep, you heard that right. The 750-pound, 13-foot reptile had gobbled up what looked like an arrowhead and a hand-carved, tear-shaped stone. Shane Smith, owner of Red Antler Processing, told me that he decided to start digging through alligator stomachs after hearing about someone finding dog tags in a gator's stomach in South Carolina. He's cut into four or five big alligators so far, and he's found everything from fishing lures to an unfired 45 caliber bullet. In this alligator, Smith found the usual bones, hair, feathers, and stones, but he also noticed a rock that didn't look like the others. It turned out to be the point of an atlatl dart an ancient weapon that uses a piece of wood to launch a pointed spear. If you haven't seen this, the YouTube world's full of them. Basically, you use a piece of wood as a lever to hurl a shortened spear at faster speeds and longer distances. People can get very accurate with these. In fact, states have added atlatl seasons into hunting seasons or legal means of take during archery season. Experts told local media that the atlatl point was likely made between 5,000 and 6,000 BC, which would make it about 8,000 years old. I gotta say, for being 8,000 years old and in an alligator stomach, it's in pretty good shape. They just don't make outdoor gear like they used to. The second object is an even bigger mystery. 
Smith assumed at first it was a fishing weight, but he soon learned that it's a late archaic period device called a plummet. This heavy, tear-shaped object is about one and a half inches long. It's finely carved and has two holes near the top that do not go all the way through the stone. It's made from hematite, an iron oxide used by native groups between 1000 and 2000 BC. Archaeologists have found thousands of these objects, but no one quite knows what they were used for. Some believe they were used as fishing weights or charms, while others think they were used as a bolas, a weapon made of weights tied to the ends of interconnected cords made to, like, tangle up birds and small game. One 2011 study by researchers in Louisiana hypothesized that they were used in a weighted loom weaving process. We don't know what Native Americans used plummets for, but we do know how they ended up in an alligator's stomach. And no, as far as we know, the gator didn't eat an archaeologist. That belongs in a museum! So do you! Alligators often eat grit and rocks to help with digestion. They don't have gizzards like ducks and chickens, but they still consume stones to help break up indigestible objects in their stomachs, like, I don't know, pieces of wood or large chunks of bone. So, after sitting on a river bottom or bank for thousands of years, these ancient artifacts, whatever they were used for during their time, were consumed and put to a much different use as a, uh, an acid of sorts. A digestif. Hard to find that feature on any modern multi-tool, isn't it? Quick fun fact for you. What is the difference between gastrolite and gastrolith? A gastrolith is a stomach stone, which is exactly what these ancient artifacts became. A gastrolite is what happens to a gastrolith when it passes through the system. You can think of that as a uh, stinky stomach stone. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. 
Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Next up, lab-raised meat. We've covered this topic several times before, so I won't bore you with a long introduction. If you'd like to hear my thoughts on this debate, check out episode 84. It's enough to say that I'm not a fan. Currently, we have a lot of people on this planet who do not know where food comes from. I mean, it's one banana, Michael. What could it cost? Ten dollars? If you look out my window here in Bozeman, you can see the once-prime farm ground of the Gallatin Valley being chewed up by the houses and Kentucky bluegrass that surround them. All of these residents are consuming foodstuffs, but where does that foodstuff come from once you put a house on top of where it grows? Can't come from here anymore. If we start growing meat in a lab, it is conceivable to me that we might stop caring about the land that meat is supposed to come from and trying to protect that land in its entirety. That does not sit well with me. The latest update in this controversy began when the U.S. Department of Agriculture announced it would begin accepting comments related to how lab-grown meat products are labeled. As you might expect, the lab-grown meat folks would like the USDA to allow them to slap a big red meat sticker on all their products, much like the almond milk companies lobbied to be allowed to call their products milk. Last year, representatives of the lab-grown meat industry asked the USDA to impose labeling rules based on, quote, the finished product rather than the process by which the food was made. In other words, since good quality lab-grown meat is, technically speaking, meat, these companies want to be free to call it that. Supporters have also suggested calling lab-grown products, quote, clean meat to emphasize their low environmental impact. Cattle ranchers have been less than enthused about that kind of language. It implies that natural meat is, quote, dirty, and they've offered a few alternatives. The National Cattlemen's Beef Association suggested, quote, in vitro meat, synthetic meat, meat byproduct, and simply fake meat as fair labels for lab-grown alternatives. Uh, it's safe to say that uh, there's some middle ground here that's yet to be reached. I'm sympathetic with the ranchers, but I have to admit that their argument is a little weak. Unlike almond milk, which is water, lab-grown meat is a heck of a lot closer to the real thing. It's usually grown from fetal bovine serum that's extracted when pregnant cows are slaughtered. The cellular structure of lab-grown meat is biologically the same as the meat tissue that comes from the animal. I guess this argument depends on whether you think that meat can be reduced to the sum of its parts. Is the steak grown in a lab the same thing as the steak that used to be part of a living, breathing animal? Just as importantly, is the experience of eating that steak the same? Does removing the sacrifice of a living creature from our meat consumption change us as humans? 
For some, probably not. You don't give a crap where it came from. I know we're wading into deep waters here, and I'm sorry to say that I don't have good answers to these questions, but they're questions we should start thinking about. Lab-grown meat hasn't reached American shores just yet, but it's right around the corner. Whether we want to or not, we're going to have to decide whether to incorporate lab-grown meat into our diet and what we want to call it. As for me, if you're proud of something, call it what it is. In vitro pregnant cow serum meat. Mmm. Arby's, we have the... In vitro pregnant cow serum meat. If you would like to weigh in on this new USDA rule, search for FSIS-2020-0036 on regulations.gov. Scientists with Spain's Museum of Natural History published a study this month showing that Neanderthals were far more sophisticated bird hunters than we previously thought. The researchers in this study went as far as recreating the ancient hunt just to prove it could be done. That is a job you want, kids. Neanderthal impersonator. Up until now, people believe that Neanderthals came by their protein without much finesse. Anthropologists call it confrontational hunting, which means close quarters assault of animals like mammoths, mountain sheep, woolly rhinos with a wooden spear and rocks and just pure old brawn and muscle and bone. In one study of Neanderthal skeletal remains, a widespread pattern of resulting head and neck injuries most closely matched by modern rodeo riders came to light. You might stop and think about that the next time you get to uh, obsessing about sectional density and minutes of angle for your long-range shooting, and maybe uh, you want to show off your uh, trigger finger callus and blister and that sunburn you got out at the range. Anyway, the paleoornithologist, that is ancient bird specialist working on the study, noticed a near-perfect overlap in the ancient geographical distribution of Neanderthals and a particular kind of crow known as a chaff that is still common today. The chaff, spelled C-H-O-U-G-H, is one of those animals named for the sound it makes, like the chickadee, the bobwhite quail, or a kind of Tasmanian spotted owl known as the moorpork. That last one is also the common name for those too fond of the buffet table. Give me all the bacon and eggs you have. Archaeologists have demonstrated that chaffs and Neanderthals were at certain sites at the same time, and several chaff bones have been found with bite marks and other evidence of early human feeding. So, the scientists decided to demonstrate that catching the chaffs was, as those old Geico ads put it, so easy even a caveman could do it. Chaffs often nest in shallow pockets along cave walls, and the scientists were able to walk up quietly and catch them in butterfly nets, or even with their bare hands. The chaffs showed, quote, high sight tenacity, meaning that members of the species continued to come back and roost in the same places, despite other chaffs getting caught there over and over. When the scientists shone flashlights at the birds, they tried to get away from the light by pushing closer to the rock which made them even easier to catch. The scientists speculated that the same effect could have been achieved by Neanderthals using fire. And we know, for instance, that hunters all over the southern U.S. used fire to spotlight possums, raccoons, and other small game before electricity came along. So you don't need hundreds of thousands of lumens and a uh, fancy metal tube to dazzle prey. Although we'll never know for sure, the study makes it seem that pre-planned hunting at night using light as a technology was, you know, possible for Neanderthals. 
Remember, just 20 years ago, we didn't think that Neanderthals could speak, use fire, or make art, and now we're almost positive they could do all three, and more. I won't be entirely surprised if in the next several years, we learn that they invented a rock-based version of, like, Candy Crush, then slowly went extinct when they spent more time breaking Neolithic bonbons or whatever than gathering food and out-competing the Homo sapiens. Fire spam! Carpal tunnel! Carpal tunnel! He's got it bad! Quick, we need Ben Gang! Moving on to the crime desk. San Francisco Animal Control is searching for a woman who was caught serving a, quote, platter of meat to wild coyotes on Bernal Hill. Although everyone knows that conditioning wild animals to be fed has consequences, like people being bitten and the animals themselves eventually being put down, as in killed, Local San Francisco sources say that the real reason for the offense is that the meat offered to the coyotes was not locally sourced organic. Congratulations, San Francisco! You've ruined pizza! First the Hawaiians, and now you! If you want to donate your time and resources, there is an increasingly long list of critters that need help. Coyotes are not one of them. They'll be here a long time after we're gone. Next up, a story that is as rich as the sea was salty and crabby puns. Canadians continue to set a high bar with wildlife crime sentencing. According to the CBC, since 2008, there have been 15 different Fisheries and Oceans Canada files opened on Scott Steer. Steer has faced serious judicial penalties, including jail time, a 22-year ban from fishing in Canadian or U.S. waters, and significant fines, yet he's been able to sidestep them all. After yet another serious fisheries violation, which resulted in the high-speed boarding of his vessel outside of Vancouver, B.C., authorities seized and released 300 illegally fished and caught crab. Steer, it seems, was finally in the pinchers of the law. Steer and company, which includes his mother and partner, are habitual offenders. Habitual offenders always kind of makes me uh, think of that scene in one of the best movies of all time, Raising Arizona. Recidivism! Not a pretty word, is it, hi? Anyway, in 2019, they were caught illegally harvesting sea cucumbers, which racked up another eight offenses between July of 2019 and March 2020. They allegedly received $80,000 by falsely claiming benefits under a native claims corporation, for which they received a grant and subsequently fraud charges. Again, Steer, whose name suggests an ability to avoid collision, has had fines, citations, probations, prohibitions, many near misses with the inside of a jail cell, and now the province has seized his vessel, truck and trailer, all three commercial seafood businesses associated with him, $1.3 million in assets. The province claims were made off the backs of illegally taken seafood, such as crabs and cucumbers, and they are looking to seize his home on Gabriola Island. It looks as if the tides are changing for Mr. Steer. And lastly, a group of poachers in Missouri were reported by a concerned citizen. A group of 16 hunters were found with 471 squirrels in their possession after two days of hunting. This group was found to have 151 squirrels over their legal possession limit. The daily limit is 10 squirrels per person with a two-day limit in possession maximum. If you want me to explain that a little bit better, I will. In the regulations, it says you can shoot 10 squirrels per person per day. However, if you are not actively consuming those squirrels, even though you could, in theory, shoot 10 squirrels legally, 
you would be illegally harvesting squirrels if your total possession limit exceeds 20 squirrels. You with me? So I shot 10 squirrels the first day, 10 squirrels the second day. I want to go out the third day. I better eat some squirrels. And whatever squirrels I eat, I can then try to replace on that third day of hunting. So if I have 10 candy bars and you... Never mind. The Missouri Department of Conservation would like to remind everyone that squirrels are a game animal, and that makes them just as important as any other game animal. Taking any game species over the limit removes the possibility of a legal hunter's opportunity at having a hunt, that being a successful one or not. As we get into the thick of hunting seasons, be respectful out there. Be courteous. There's going to be a lot of folks in the woods, first-timers, long-timers. Remember, at the end of the day, we're all out there to enjoy ourselves. Be kind, be courteous. That's all I've got for you this week. Remember to check out steeldealers.com to find a local, knowledgeable, kind, patient steel dealer near you whose only care is making sure you have what you need when tree limbs fall across your shooting lane or road to camp. Side note here, if you want to make easy work of light-bodied animal butchery, get a set of steel lopping shears. The 30-inchers make butchering deer and antelope a breeze. Get the pruning shears for squirrels, rabbits, and upland birds, even fish collars. You'll thank me later. And last but not least, write in to A-S-K-C-A-L. That's askcal at meateater.com and let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. You may not always hear it here on the show, but I read them all, and I appreciate you. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance Axis deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order.